Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Christian CK, who on Twitter is called CK Snarks. And he works for communication and media at Bitcoin Magazine. I hope I don't get that one wrong. But he is actually the second person from Bitcoin Magazine that I get on this podcast in this third season. As the first one was... Wait, who was... <laughs> I think it was Colin Harper. It was Colin Harper. Our boy. Yeah. The real question is, when Aaron? When Aaron? I don't know. He seems hard to get. You got to hit him up on Slack, man. He seems Slide up in those DMs. <laughs> He's working on that book about history of cypherpunks. I'm excited for it. I hope it comes out in audio. I'm excited about it too, because I can use it for my thesis or something. It's a source that if it gets published by some kind of publishing house, then it's very useful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's there's not enough uh, literature about um, cryptocurrency, cypherpunks, and all that kind of history. I'm sure that's a, a struggle for you. There's a lot of stuff that, that's published, but not much of it is reliable. And I spoke, I actually spoke to one of my coordinators, my supervisors, and he said that I should use the book of I'm really bad about names, but yeah, Julian Assange, who published something about... Oh, yeah. That, I mean, you, you said it, right? It... Hmm? What was that? I said you said it right. It's Julian Assange. Yeah. And apparently it has a very bad reputation and record. People disagree that he got all the facts right, and I'm supposed to use it as a source of truth, which it's obviously not. Shows us how uh, splendid and, uh, what's the word, uh, reputable our current education structure is. I mean, they care much more about the source and the fact that it can be identified in a library and it cannot be modified over time because it has the ISBN code and you should find it and consult it. And they distrust websites and blogs and online resources just because they can be edited or they can disappear. And to them, this reliability factor is much more important than the accuracy of the information. I don't know. It seems difficult. I remember I'm not that, that old. I'm younger than 30, just to dox myself a little bit. But when I was growing up, my teachers would always warn me against Wikipedia. Like that's not a valid source. Um, and I feel like that heuristic of it needs to be officially stamped um, and sealed is something that is true for the past couple of generations. And, uh, you know, now that we are a generation that has kind of grown up with the internet and our internet natives to some degree, uh, it's just becoming less and less important. Oh, I agree about Wikipedia. It's very unreliable. Anyone can edit it at any point. But if it's somebody else's web page or blog, and for example, I used the web page of Zimmerman, the inventor of PGP. And when I explained what PGP is, I have used his own words, his own description. And my supervisor told me that 
you should or I should be using sources that come from experts who interpret it. And I said, that's wrong because I only use the basic information and I interpret it myself. And then she asked me, are you an expert in the field? And I said, no, as in not in cryptography. And he said, it's like the comparison that he made is that it's just like a political party which gets launched tomorrow and announces that it will run for presidency and pretends to be, let's say, libertarian. But if you look at the doctrine and what it promises to do, it's much more to the left. And there's a difference between first the first account and the party which says and describes something that they do and the interpretation of an expert in the field. But in the case of PGP, I don't think it's that complicated. And if somebody actually disagreed with the conceptual description of Zimmerman, then I guess he would have changed it. It's been like 20 plus years. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in academia. And uh, I know that you are uh, deep in your doctorate, but I'm glad... Uh, I went straight into the workforce personally. Uh, lucky you, because I, I get a lot of pressure from my parents, from everybody around me. Even Christy, Christy the editor-in-chief of Bitcoin Magazine, told me, you know, Vlad, you should finish this because I just have to write the thesis at this point. So if I write the thesis and publish it and defend it, in front of my supervisors, I get a PhD and I will get to be the first PhD to write for Bitcoin Magazine, which in itself is a stupid way of getting credentials from an authority and just a way to brag. But I guess it will help me later in life, hopefully, or else I'm going to regret the tuition fee that I'm about to pay next month. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, I think you're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. There's definitely the like sunk cost fallacy is that you've already put in all this money and work. You might as well just finish. Um, but on the flip side, obviously, uh, in this current world, this current fiat, uh, you know, uh, nation state ruled world that we live in, uh, having a PhD is quite an achievement and something that, you know, gives you that has kind of like a respect that comes with it. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely don't know what the right thing to do is. I think the only real value of a PhD is that it proves that you're consistent and you show some kind of commit commitment over time to do something. Otherwise, the topic that I'm pursuing about internet and how it's governed which also includes Bitcoin and cypherpunks because it's a big factor which opposes the mainstream narrative that we usually get in such studies. I think that this can be useful to some people, but it's a very niche subject. I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. I don't think it's going to earn me some kind of distinction or place in academia. I'll just publish it and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think the PhD is more to give you distinction amongst the plebs, not necessarily in academia. Oh, it depends. You have lots of teachers, pets, and those who hold seminars, and they carry the books of 
their mentor. It's like a ranking system. And just like in every ranking system, it's easier to advance if you kiss enough ass. <laughs> yes. The reasons why I like the Bitcoin space, because it's entirely based on merit. And it doesn't matter what you have previously done. If you mess up, you're going to get discredited. It happened to Gavin Andreessen, who was the de facto leader of Bitcoin for several years. This gives me hope that there is still this meritocratic dimension to the world. And it's part of the reason why I like Bitcoin. Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if on a large scale because people in general are lazy and not very competent and look for the easy way out. And they feel comfortable having some kind of government to guarantee that they have jobs, to provide them laws, which ensure that even when they're lazy, they can still have some kind of security and safety. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I realized that this side of libertarianism is only for people who can be accountable and take charge and become sovereign over everything that they own and own their deeds. Whereas most people just want to hide under a blanket. They need something to conceal themselves, to conceal their actions and to support their ignorant viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, I put out tweets before um, along the lines of like, uh, Bitcoin's a psychedelic, Bitcoin is the orange pill. It's something that wakes you up from this illusion. So I kind of agree with you that, um, that the current nanny state, nation state situation uh, enables people to kind of enables people to have these poor habits and lack of self-responsibility and lack of ownership. And I think that a Bitcoin world would definitely change that for sure. It would at least make it a lot more expensive to be ignorant, to need these services for all this stuff. You kind of have to pay for it up front rather than the other way around where um, the nation state essentially just taxes on top and then pretends to or goes through the motions of satisfying those services or those needs. And what bugs me about it is that our generation tends to lean left. And by left, I don't mind the ideas of the left. Sometimes they can be good for universal human rights and stuff. But when you want bigger government and more intervention, and you expect your government to do everything for you, as opposed to taking responsibility, building a business, wanting to have fair competition and entering this space of competition. I, I think it's a lot easier to just join a corporation, which by the way, also leans left because they have closed the door behind them. And with left-wing policies, the regulations are stricter and it's harder for any competing firm, which is smaller, to actually get to the same level. So it's more comfortable, I guess, to be left-leaning in this environment. But I'm not sure how long it's going to last. And I'm not sure if it's going to lead to anything productive or useful for our civilization, as opposed to providing an illusion of comfort. 
because really, I think Keynesians argue nowadays that they have increased the welfare at a grander scale and that entire nations have been taken out of poverty through debt. But somebody is going to have to pay for all this and nobody knows when and how. Yeah, I mean, my problem with, and again, I would say that I'm recently reformed, but my problem with kind of the the leftist thinking is that they only have one tool and that's the government hammer. Um, so anything that's wrong, smash it with the government hammer. So that's kind of my big issue. I, I empathize with some of their qualms and some of their goals, but the tool and methodology that uh, they always turn to, which is regulation, uh, I think is very, very misguided. Uh, and obviously I'm opposed to the ever expansion of government, even though uh, with the current conditions, it seems inevitable. You know, I come from a country which has a history of totalitarian regimes. And we have had sort of a fascist government in the 1930s. And then we entered the Second World War on the side of Germany. We switched sides in the last couple of years, but it didn't matter. We were, we were still declared as friends of Germany and lost a lot of wealth. And we are basically robbed by the Russians. And then we, we basically became part of USSR influence. We were not politically and geographically part of USSR, but we were under their control. So they imposed their own system. They centralized everything. They confiscated wealth. I have my grand-grandparents who lost everything to confiscation. And I have my grandparents who tried to escape their stigma because they came from what they used to call bourgeois families, even though their parents only had like a butcher shop and the other one I think was, what was he? I don't know what it's called in English. What's Not, it called in Romanian? It's Templar. Anyway, it means that he was building a carpenter. Fuck it, a, comp, a, a carpenter. Like Jesus. Yeah, like Jesus. A holy profession. Yeah. So he had a business revolving around this. He was a carpenter and he was also dealing with glass if you needed to change your windows or something. So you had these small businesses which were collectivized and centralized. And then you had the next generation which was stigmatized and tried to survive in a system where obedience was being rewarded the most. And then you had a revolution 40 years later where the whole system was thrown away and we entered this global market totally unprepared. And right now we are a consumer market and still people believe in the government and still people believe there's some kind of hope. And it's just about the right person getting into office to reform everything. That's the common way of thinking. And I used to be on their side and think that it's right. And I used to think that if I were to get into politics as a fair person, who's not going to get bribed, who is going to be fair to everybody, then it's all getting better. But in reality, you have all this bureaucratic system with all these officials who never get elected because they're there until they get retired. 
who have their own interests and you have to deal with them. And then you have to deal with strategic partners. That's how we call our allies who provide their, just like the United States. The United States basically says, we're going to defend your country in exchange for 1% of your GDP and military, which basically funds the NATO army. And you're going to give special fiscal advantages to Starbucks, to McDonald's, to KFC, and whichever American businesses are going to open in your country. They're not going to pay the same amount of taxes. And we're fucked, all of us. And if the United States economy goes down, we're all even more fucked because 40% of the world's capital gets traded on Wall Street. If you zoom out, you can see the Cantillon effect in action, baby. It's crazy. I'm not saying it's something bad because you Americans are the best of empires that the world has ever seen in the sense that you at least provide people with free speech and education. And the Russians were a lot worse. They tried to brainwash everyone and send people to forced labor camps and persecute anyone who was against them and do the gulag, which was a lot worse than the Holocaust in terms of scale and magnitude. With the Americans, it's a lot better, but how long is it going to last? Is this even sustainable? I think this is a good segue into um, a post-fiat world, which is one of the topics I sent you. Have you read The Sovereign Individual? I haven't yet. I know it's a very popular book. And it has been recommended to me several times, but I work so much that sometimes I barely have time to focus on any kind of entertainment or have time for myself. I wish that changes for you, my friend. But, you know, at the same time, working in Bitcoin is a lot of fun. That's what I found. Yeah, I find it liberating. I think that's the word for it. You get to do something which you love. And you get to enter a world where it's all about what you can do and how good you are, as opposed to what kind of networking you have and what kind of relations you have to some kind of authority to promote you. I don't think the Bitcoin space has gotten to the point where incompetence gets pushed or nepotism or anything else. I think we are still part of the first generation of Bitcoiners and we are still pure in this regard and we haven't been touched by the perversions of the fiat world. I mean, I don't know how to react to that. We haven't been touched by the perversions of the fiat world. I definitely think that we have. Uh, I definitely think that we are interacting with and rubbing up against the fiat world constantly, but there is a level of meritocracy, especially as you get closer to the core code um, that really reigns supreme. Uh, I think the further the further away you get from that, you get into companies and you know services and whatever, then that's it's harder to say. Um, that it's as pure, but you know, I don't think that purity should be or is the goal, anyways. Well, that depends on what we refer to. But in the case of the code, I like the fact that 
people can admit that they were wrong and egos are a lot smaller than in other places like governments or big businesses and corporations. They can just say that something which is better than their design gets accepted and not get too mad about it. Even though I guess there were the egos of Mike Hearn and what's the name of the other one? Jeff Garzik, who have been core developers for quite some time and then they got removed and also Gavin. And even Peter Todd, who is pretty prolific and has done some really interesting work, has had some flawed designs and was able to acknowledge it and said, your design is better and we're going to go with that. And by this, I refer to the Lightning Network because Peter Todd had a different proposal for the Lightning Network, which didn't get adopted because it had several issues. And he accepted that the Lightning Network was the better design, which is great. If we look at the Industrial Revolution, the competition was a lot different and people tried to believe in what they were doing to a greater extent. But if this happens, it's going to get poured into altcoins. And now that I mentioned altcoins, we can move on to that topic which you proposed prior to starting this podcast. And you want to argue that altcoins are good or not as bad as people usually say? Okay, so this is a nuanced topic. Um, and I definitely have a very unpopular opinion about this. And before we even get started, let's not by any ways mint words. Altcoins are terrible investments. Most of them have absolutely no future. They're just a course in uh, rec- rectonomics, uh, the economics of getting wrecked. Um, but with that being said, I definitely do think that altcoins are very good for Bitcoin. Um, and that this distinction is something that most Bitcoiners kind of get wrong. Um, you know, I totally buy into the fact that, hey, you want to protect people from um, buying a bad investment. Hey, you know, all of these things um, are just copycats. They're scams. They're disingenuous, all of the above. I agree with all of that. Um, you know, when I'm talking to my friends and family, I try to give them sound investment advice, although this is not investment advice, which is, you know, buy Bitcoin, research Bitcoin, um, and then, you know, generally speaking, avoid everything else, but obviously, you know, do your own research and make your own decisions. Um, So, you know, again, what I'm trying to say is that altcoins are bad for individuals, but with that being said, um, they do a lot of positive things for Bitcoin. Um, Number one is that they create a massive amount of confusion Um, I believe that Bitcoin is an anti-fragile technology and a network um, and that over time, uh, Bitcoin only gets stronger. Uh, So with that being said, uh, you know, confusion is very beneficial for Bitcoin because Bitcoin has a lot of enemies. Bitcoin is trying to disrupt uh, the underlying incentive structure of the world and is trying to disrupt American imperialism. Uh, we, We need our enemies to be confused and preoccupied. Uh, And this is something I've been saying for a long time. And Giacomo kind of talked about this in his talk in at Riga is, you know, uh, 
all of all of the noise created by ICOs and altcoins and Libra and all this stuff, all of that stuff takes up a lot of regulatory bandwidth and it takes up a lot of their attention and it makes them revisit all of these laws around securities and blah, blah, blah and BS. And it takes their eye off what's really happening, which is Bitcoin. I really see altcoins as kind of like this Trojan horse and on the other, on the inside is sound money. It's Bitcoin. It's self sovereignty. Um, it's it's mining. It's proof of work. Um, it's all the principles that underlie Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that in it, first and foremost, that is the biggest defense of altcoins is that it is um, it is a shield. It is confusion. Uh, it is sucking up bandwidth from regulators and from governments. Oh, with this, I can agree. And I usually argue that altcoins are a great testing bed for lots of technologies that may or may not get integrated into Bitcoin. And the fact that we have Bitcoin Cash, which experimented with big blocks and ended up reducing the block size, which is hilarious. And we also have Ethereum, which started from the idea of colored coins and smart contracts and everything that was not going to get introduced into Bitcoin, because all of these were proposed on the Bitcoin talk forum at some point by various developers. And I think Ethereum is a sum of elements that were never going to get introduced on the base layer, but will possibly get introduced on Lightning on top of it. So I think that from an experimental point of view, they are great and they have taught everyone important lessons about developing and what really matters and what the value proposition really is. As people were arguing in 2017 that instead of having small blocks, you can just have bigger blocks and a larger amount of transactions. But you cannot guarantee that the volumes are constant and you're not going to have very small blocks that don't really subsidize miners. And also, you're going to reduce the amount of decentralization, which is a mistake that the internet has made in the early days by accepting to have so many custodians and third parties, as opposed to the original vision that Tim Berners-Lee had in the 90s, that every internet user was to store his own files and run his own server. And that didn't happen. It was impossible at the time for the internet to grow at scale without trusting third parties with storage and with everything. Nowadays, it's very rare for a company to use its own servers, unless it's a big corporation like Amazon or Google, which already has its own services. You're going to find that most businesses simply use Cloudflare or some other service because it's convenient, it's cheaper. It has grown to a scale where it doesn't really make sense for you to buy your own server and run it because it also implies costs with personnel who maintain it, with development and research and stuff like that, which is a lot easier to just outsource it. But with Bitcoin, it's important to be able to run your own node and validate transactions and educate everybody about the virtues of decentralization. I guess this is the biggest accomplishment that Bitcoin maximalists have made in the space. 
as they explain to everyone why it's important to have small blocks as they guarantee decentralization. And it's important to run your own full node to avoid attacks by miners because you keep them in check with your node and also to validate your own transactions as opposed to relying on some kind of SPV wallet which trusts a third-party third party node. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Again, I am absolutely on board with the virtues of Bitcoin. And I think that I'm, I'm personally thankful that the, the you know there's toxic maximalists there to educate me. I entered Bitcoin in 2017 and you know, went through my own journey. But generally speaking, I guess the distinction that I would like to make is, you know, first and foremost, Bitcoin is the only good investment. Bitcoin is the only decentralized um, protocol here. I mean, you can make some arguments that other things are, uh, you know, have a lot of activity, but Bitcoin is the only, like, you know, this is the only signal here. But once we make that distinction that, hey, the only good investment is Bitcoin, the only sound protocol is Bitcoin, and then you look at the other things, what do they do for Bitcoin, right? I, I think that obviously, you know, we all agree that they're bad for investors. They're bad for uh, individuals and that individuals are going to get wrecked. Um, but does this other noise actually help Bitcoin? So uh, my first point was that, yes, it helps Bitcoin. And first and foremost, the most important thing is that it creates a massive amount of confusion for regulators, which is by far the most important thing that Bitcoin needs right now. That is Bitcoin's greatest needs. Um, but number two is that it actually brings people into the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I would argue that the number one use case for Bitcoin right now is acting as the reserve currency for the network of shitcoin casinos. Uh, so shit, you know, people get attracted by the gains and the pumping and the gambling and whatever, everything that, uh, you know, trading and all of this stuff uh, appeals to the human psyche uh, that brings them in. Uh, generally speaking, they're going to be buying Bitcoin in order to get access to their shit coins. They may join crypto Twitter. Uh, they may join Reddit. And then all of a sudden, they're just that much closer to the Bitcoin message, to Bitcoiners. Um, so it's kind of part of Bitcoin's gravity is it brings them in. And on top of that, it's a massive, uh, it's a use case for, for Bitcoin. And it creates Bitcoin volumes and generates fees and supports Bitcoin businesses. Um, so again, like people are getting wrecked. Yes, I agree. But Bitcoin is getting better. Bitcoin's ecosystem and infrastructure is getting better. It's getting funded uh, and it's good. It's good for Bitcoin. You know, people like to say Honey Badger don't care. Uh, and it's true. Honey Badger doesn't care. Honey Badger has no limits. There are no weapons that are beyond Bitcoin's disposal. And Bitcoin will dispose upon of everything and everyone uh, to achieve its mission. And I think that altcoins are actually a massive tool in that for in, in that arsenal for bitcoin um so uh the you know the the counterforce which are the the maximalists and the bitcoiners producing educational content producing more uh, uh, podcasts than you can imagine producing more books than you can imagine getting out there and speaking the good word uh, i think that is necessary and it's the counterweight but on the flip side the can like i would i want the world with confusion because i think that is a more suitable, more uh, hospitable environment for Bitcoin's ultimate success. But I think that this whole smokescreen idea is taken from very practical and Machiavellic deeds of the elites that we're having right now. 
as we are being divided right now with identity politics and lots of new ideas that enter our culture and they divide us and make us argue and a neighbor who watches Fox News is not going to be able to even talk and say hello to the neighbor who watches CNN. And this helps the elite stay in power. If you're up there, you're going to constantly want to fund whichever fringe and niche movement exists that is meant to divide and constantly attack traditional values because you're going to not get attacked. You're projecting a huge smoke screen which covers you and people just mindlessly attack each other. And it's the same with governments and shitcoins. You're going to have governments spend a lot of time and energy on these projects which are rotten from their very core. And you're going to have people who actually go to jail. And I guess that they are Bitcoin smarters. But at the same time, there's very good and robust and long-lasting development that goes into Bitcoin. And right now I can think of all the hard work going into the BTC Pay server, which is innovative as it allows people to transact Bitcoins and accept, allow merchants to accept Bitcoins without any third parties like BitPay, BTC Pay, Globy, or whichever payments processor you can think of. This is direct, this is without fees. All you need to do is set up your server and you're all set, that's it. And also you have stuff like SegWit and whatever Peter Willy is developing because really he's, he's a genius. He and Andrew Polstra and all the others. I think right now they work on Taproot and Schnorr. And yeah, Schnorr and smart contract functionalities for Bitcoin. And their brilliance is in the fact that they can work around the limitations and build on top of them which is brilliant. You can say, okay, this protocol is obsolete and there's nothing more we can do on it. And let's just work on Decred or Mimblewimble or whatever. Oh gosh, don't get me started on Decred. I think Decred has very good intentions, but it's experimental. And I would never advise anyone to invest in it. I would never touch it, really. To me, it's just like a protocol that exists is going to be an interesting experiment is going to be a good footnote to add in the history of bitcoin as it proved something in regards to how it's governed but it will crash and burn just like all the others yeah uh, decred people just have really really big claims when they have zero zero scale and no liquidity so um until then, it's, it's really all just a nice story as far as I'm concerned. I think I like the whole idea of code is law and protocols and software in general, where you decide that you're not going to change it and adjust it according to momentary needs, just like constitutions or whatever, because that leads to crisis and that leads to the same kind of situation from which we are trying to escape right now. If you have a protocol, it's supposed to be neutral. And I, there's a very good article by Nick Sabo 
about it. That technology should be just like a clock. It should measure seconds and not care about politics and how some kind of parliamentary regime or whatever decides to define the second. The second is this, just a movement in the clock and that's it. And Google should be a search engine which displays results according to their popularity and according to fixed criteria. But at the same time, right now, Google is just political instrument which ranks results according to their own agenda. And you're going to see that, for example, if you look up my name, you're going to find the LinkedIn page, maybe the Twitter page, and whichever websites Google ranks as being credible. But if you look up on DuckDuckGo, they're going to rank them according to popularity, which is a clearer and fairer metric because they don't care as much about credibility of the source, but they care about how others perceive it as being credible in terms of clicks, which can be manipulated if you want, but it's still a better indicator of what is relevant as opposed to you deciding you having this political power to eliminate content, obliterate anything that you want. And I think that's what Ethereum is turning into. And that's what Bitcoin should never become. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure where this uh, conversation is going. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, generally, sweeter, but <laughs> it's fun. generally speaking, uh, I would say... Ether, Decred, any other altcoin that has kind of evolved beyond just pure shitcoin, they're based off of misconceptions on how Bitcoin really works. They're trying to address misconceptions on how Bitcoin really works that they think are you know broken about Bitcoin, but are really um, features. Uh, and therefore, I think you know as their protocols continue to play out. Uh, their incorrect assumptions are going to start becoming very evident. Um, so uh, just a couple examples, both uh, of those protocols make the assumption that miners are in charge and then they make uh, specific uh, and significant changes in order to mitigate this threat that miners are in charge in Bitcoin. Uh, and then now that we kind of see it play out for a little bit, it's pretty clear that miners are not in charge at Bitcoin. They're service providers and that fully validating nodes that know the rules and have the full ledger are actually what's in charge. Um, you see in Ethereum, uh, they also made the issue, they also made a misconception that um, that block size is, is, is an issue and that miners should be in charge and that miners should be able to raise the block size. And you see that um, as their chain is getting more and more bloated, uh, miners are thinking short term and are raising the block size uh, in order to you know, keep things moving forward and to keep collecting more fees. Um, so uh, I guess Decred again, miners are in charge, but so they developed this elaborate scheme of stakers that have dominance over miners. Um, so that way that they could, you know, make sure that miners don't, you know, fuck around. Uh, but again, like, I think all of that is extra complexity and an attack vector for not when in reality code is law, like you said, and miners are not in charge. Uh, and, you know, really the rough consensus of Bitcoin is keeping all of the stakeholders um, kind of at bay because their incentives 
are slightly misaligned. Miners want slightly different things than users and uh, full node operators want slightly different things than exchanges and all of those kind of slightly misaligned incentives um, really form this beautiful rough consensus that only allows things to be go through and be added to the protocol that truly make the protocol better, that make the protocol better for everyone. Um, and I, I'm just, I've yet to see uh, either ETH or Decred or anything else um, resemble uh, that sort of resilience to bad ideas and that sort of, um, you know, overall acceptance to credible, well-tested, time-tested ideas. Um, so, like, again, if you look at ETH right now and just, like, the political issues, like, you have people saying, like, you know, ETH needs to get better for everyone except for miners. And, um, you know, we just, like, a lot of, like, hey, it's us versus them within the protocol rather than understanding that everyone is a valuable portion of uh, this ecosystem. Like, you can already see the unfairness uh, emerging and the second-class citizens emerging and the us versus them um, which, which Bitcoin really kind of dis enables it, you know, you just can't like us versus them means you fork. When you said that you're not really sure where we're, we're going to go with this. I basically agree because most of my podcasts are just ideas from which we start and we have no idea what the point B is, but we debate and we discuss and we present our ideas and hopefully produce anything that people will find valuable and worth listening to. And I think this episode can be easily titled CK on shitcoins because we are discussing the purpose and philosophy and point of shitcoins right now. We are taking some of the most popular ones. We are deconstructing their myths and we are saying, okay, they can be good smoke screens in relation to governments and regulators. They can be interesting uh, scientific experiments. You should never put any money into it unless you understand the risk and you take the risk of getting wrecked. But this is still the kind of conversation that we should be having because I guess in relation to Bitcoin, they project something and they prove something about the value proposition, about the Lindy effect, about robustness and everything else that seems to be thrown out of the window whenever a new ICO paper gets published. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of along the same lines of, you know, your discussion of, you know, experimentation happening on these other things, you know, learning what not to do and having a case study for what not to do can be and is just as important as what to do, right? It can help you and guide you as much. Um, and I mean, I'm, I could see a world where, you know, a lot of these developers are cutting their teeth for a few years on the shit coins based on, you know, flawed uh, understandings and confusion. Um, they gain valuable skills and valuable lessons and, you know, in, in, uh, the school of wrecked uh, and they emerge on the other side with uh, abilities and uh, capabilities to contribute to Bitcoin and, and, you know, even more conviction in buying into the Bitcoin message because, you know, they've been getting wrecked and they keep seeing orange coin go up. Um, so really like 
I just see this all as part of the process. Uh, I say all the time that we are living in hyper-Bitcoinization today. Like this is the process of hyper-Bitcoinization. It started the day Satoshi released the, uh, released the code and it has been, uh, you know, steamrolling and snow and snowballing since then. And now we're living in a world where they talk about Bitcoin on mainstream media every single day. It's a household name. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of copycats. Uh, it's just insane to kind of see where we've come. And I think that altcoins are an inevitable part of this process of hyper-Bitcoinization and educating the world about money. Like, how do you think we can go from a world that's operating on fiat to a world that has returned to a new hard money standard without this like wrecked education, the school of wrecked? Uh, so it's inevitable. Again, like you should try to help people and teach them, but at the same time, you know, it, ultimately, I just think it's all good for Bitcoin. I also have a degree in education, which I got at a time when I, I was sure I wanted to become a professor of sorts. And there is this dimension, which is called informal education, which also happens in animals. When, let's say that a baboon sees that the other baboon is eaten by the tigers. That's a valuable lesson about not stepping into the territory of tigers. And you can either take notice and understand why it's a bad idea, and this leads to evolution, or you can repeat the same dumb idea and do what you should not for your own safety and just perpetuate this whole concept. And I don't think humans are very good at learning from others. I see that we have this very strong feeling of denial and we always think that we're different and we're special and it's going to go the other way with us or it's just not going to happen because we're lucky and we're fortunate and we're blessed or whatever. And that's why people take up smoking thinking that they're not going to develop lung cancer or they don't think of any kind of consequences even though the results can be seen right in front of their eyes or just during a visit at the local hospital. So I think that some of these shitcoiners, getting back to the topic that you started, I think that these shitcoiners can definitely learn and we can learn from their mistakes. But at the same time, it takes a lot of humbleness and a lot of commitment to actually acknowledge that you have made mistakes and acknowledge that there is a better project out there on which you should be working as opposed to working on some kind of shitcoin. And it's also an issue of trust because let's consider somebody like Rhett. You know Rhett, the guy who forked Bitcoin to create Bitcoin private? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm Grade not, A scammer. Yeah, he's a scammer. I'm not going to say that he doesn't understand cryptography though. He graduated from an Ivy League university, seems to have all the qualifications, seems to know coding and would possibly be very useful to review code for Bitcoin Core. And he possibly has the competence for it. But I don't think he is able to lower his ego to say, I'm going to get to the lowest and most humble level and start from there and work my way up as a way of winning everyone's respect 
And I don't think that this current culture of toxic maximalism is going to allow him to do that in the first place. I mean, he can do that because Bitcoin is permissionless, but he's not going to be trusted with his reviews, with his contributions. Yeah. So I say this a lot too, like toxicity is absolutely necessary for a monetary, uh, for a monetary standard to bootstrap. That I push back, I rub up against ETH people a lot because I do a podcast, POV Crypto, which is the Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast. Uh, and my co-host is a prominent ETH head. But I rub up against you know these ETH heads a lot because I see them getting more toxic and I'm saying like, hey, you guys are getting more toxic, but that also is kind of a good thing because that's what ETH needs. And I, I don't think that ETH is going to embrace it the same way that Bitcoiners have embraced it. But the toxicity is like the white blood cells of the protocol. Like they need to, anyone that has tarnished their reputation like Rhett has, you know, needs to be reprimanded. They need to make up for it. Like, like we've said multiple times on this podcast already, Bitcoin is a meritocracy at, at its core. And because of that, you know, if you're a scammer, like let it be known, like you're a fucking scammer. I'm sure Rhett got really, really freaking wealthy in 2017 but he sacrificed, he paid with his reputation. Uh, with Bitcoin, everything has a cost uh, and you can choose to forego you know, short-term wealth for, and short-term riches for long-term reputation and probably long-term wealth and, and riches and opportunity. Um, or you can make the choice that Rhett did, which is um, have some short-term thinking, take those incentives, uh, risk your reputation, tarnish it um, in in exchange for that short term uh, those short term gains. I'm sure that he sold a lot of B private for a lot of Bitcoin. I'm sure he knew exactly what was going on the whole time. It even turned out that he scammed Bitcoiners, but he also scammed the B uh, the Z uh, classic people because he put some inflation bug into it too and was just dumping the whole time. So, I mean. Like, you know, I can just keep blabbing about this, but uh, long story short is uh, you have to pay for everything in Bitcoin. Like, that's why Bitcoin changes the game. Uh, there's no free lunch in Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't give a shit about your feelings. You know, you can feel whatever you want. You can disillusionally work on whatever you want. But I'm sorry, the Bitcoin ETH chart looks horrible and it's keep going down and every single altcoin is definitely going to continue to trend to zero against Bitcoin um, as their lies and their uh, misconceptions rub up against reality. Speaking of inflation, because you have mentioned it, you think that the trade-off for being a shield for Bitcoin, and I'm referring to shitcoins, you think that it's worth it to have them, even though they are a bona fide inflationary or inflation for Bitcoin? Because you can think of Litecoin, you can think of Dogecoin, and probably a thousand others. And they're pretty much an inflation of Bitcoin. You buy them and they serve kind of the same purpose, but on a network that is not as secure. And if that money went into Bitcoin, it would possibly be more robust. But at the same time, they act as diversion for the regulators and they keep all of these government officials busy because they're more obviously scams. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not 
really concerned about that because ultimately what people are going to learn and what we already know is that UTXOs secured on the Bitcoin blockchain are what actually matters. And you can already see this in the market cap. There are thousands of coins, yet the majority of value at any given time is always in Bitcoin, whether that's 30% or whether that's 70%. It's, it's the same. The majority of value is in Bitcoin. So I think that value oscillates between Bitcoin and distractions um, and that ultimately it flows back into Bitcoin. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, this same paradigm shift from Bitcoin and altcoins to Bitcoin in real world assets and Bitcoin and fiat currencies. Because I think that that's what the next five years is about, is the switch from us giving a shit about uh, altcoin inflation and for us to start giving a shit about uh, real world inflation against Bitcoin. Um, so I think it's just part of the process. Uh, and, you know, in the long run, like that inflation doesn't matter because it's not redeemable on the Bitcoin blockchain. The only way it's redeemable is through a price and through an exchange. And that price is volatile. Um, so you can expect it to go down as uh, the information asymmetry and Lindy and all of those things um, continue to progress. I'm really happy that you mentioned getting into mainstream finance and that this is the plan for Bitcoin in the next five years, because one of the topics that you proposed is why you don't like the digital gold meme. And at some point it's going to be everywhere and it's going to be inescapable to hear about this digital gold competing with the real gold. And we have had that campaign, which was ran earlier this year by the company of Barry Silbert to drop gold and buy Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's not that I think that digital gold is bad. I think it's a very good beam and it's been very effective at getting Bitcoin from the cheap payments narrative to the store of value narrative. And it's been very effective at converting gold bugs. It's been very effective at putting Bitcoin in a paradigm that hedge fund managers and even you know regular people of an older generation to kind of understand the value prop. But with that being said, I think that it's also super limiting. Bitcoin is not digital gold. Bitcoin is a complete monetary shift. It's a, it's a shift in monetary pre, uh, paradigms. Like this is a new tool that we've never had before to measure value that cannot be corrupted in any way. Um, I think that like the met, I, I've been trying to propagate the metric system of value. It's for, in terms of its meme quality, it's definitely could use some work. It definitely is not very uh, understandable to Americans who don't even deal with the metric system. But I think from an accuracy perspective, what Bitcoin actually is, I think it's much, much more accurate. Um, you know, one Satoshi in my mind is like a stable and understandable way to measure value in the future. Uh, whereas a dollar and a Euro, um, God forbid some other shit fiat, um, it just isn't. It's not a reasonable way. It's not an understandable, a steady um, measurement-like way to measure value and allocate value right now. So I think that that's what Bitcoin is becoming. 
And that's why I think the digital gold meme is, uh, is, is limiting and it holds Bitcoin back because gold was like this arcane way for us to do that. But it's not nearly what Bitcoin is. Like Bitcoin is really like a monetary uh, measuring standard. Whereas gold was just like uh, the hardest, soundest money, like hardest, soundest object that we could get. And we use it as a proxy for this goal. Yeah, but it's so simple. You just say digital gold and they're going to have this idea of hard money, which exists in a digital environment. I remember. Oh, I, I like it. I like it. But it just, it's, it's limiting at the same time. I remember speaking to a friend of mine. And she had no idea about what fiat money is, what Bitcoin is. And I was trying to explain it to her. And the first question that I asked her was, do you know what backs money and what kind of value they have? Her reply was, yeah, it's backed by gold. And that's a very primitive idea. It's fundamental. And sometimes it gets taught in school that there was this kind of reserve of gold which backs your money but it's no longer the case i don't think there is any country in the world right now which is on the gold standard and i wish i was wrong and if there is one where there is a gold standard i aspire to move in it and people just think at gold as having a lot of value and appreciating a value in time because it's scarce, because it has all of these qualities which contrast very strongly the value proposition of fiat. And when they hear a Bitcoin and they associate it with gold, then voila, that's the first impression. And then they hear about the limited supply and they're sold. It's so easy to explain. Of course, there are nuances to it and you should take into consideration every aspect of defining what Bitcoin is and possibly build a better narrative for the future of people who will be living under hyper-Bitcoinization. And actually, I don't think we have given enough thought to this concept. How are we going to explain Bitcoin in a world where Bitcoin is the standard and everybody transacts it? Is it going to be just like we have known fiat? We were born into it and we never really questioned it. We took it for granted. Or will there be a greater amount of education? And I think that it's up to us, the early adopters, to establish these norms and build a world where people care about their money and know exactly why they should be preserving it. Because for the fiat world, it's a lot better for people to be ignorant and allow the central banks to do whatever they want. But for a decentralized currency world, for the hyper-Bitcoinization era, then it's essential for people to understand why they should be running their own nodes in their homes and why they should be validating their own transactions and why they should avoid custodial services. I know it's utopian, but it's important if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, I think the example that you brought up of the your friend that understood gold and why it's valuable and she thought that money was still backed by gold is the same reason why people in the future are going to appreciate respect and strive for Bitcoin. Uh, it's going to have this Lindy effect. It's going to have this history and people are going to know that there's safety in Satoshi's 
And they're going to know that, you know, that is where I store my value. Just like, you know, gold has um, built that reputation through time. Uh, In terms of the technical components of like people running their own nodes and stuff like that. Again, I think that there's going to be like enthusiasts, there's going to be governments, there's going to be businesses that are like, they just know like, hey, this is my money server. This is, you know, how I transact with the world. But there's going to be everyone else that, you know, they're just buying a router for their house because that's what it takes to make the, <laughs> the internet work in their house. Um, it's just going to be part of life. You know, I personally think that there's going to be miners and nodes and stuff like that in appliances too. Like anything that needs heat um, as a, or that needs heat, um, you can, you know, generate some sort of mining uh, system or architecture uh, in order to kind of, you know, kill two birds with one stone. So I just think that Bitcoin is going to permeate into our lives and that people aren't necessarily going to have to be educated about it, but its values get transferred to you anyways. This is actually something I was having a great conversation with uh, another Bitcoiner about is the value of Bitcoin are Bitcoin's values. Um, So you don't need no shit about sound money, but you're going to save more because Bitcoin's characteristics change how you act and behave, even if you're not thinking about it. Um, And I think that those values are long-term thinking. uh, Those values are saving over spending. Those values are um, improving yourself and being competitive uh, against others. Those values are that you have to pay for everything and nothing is free. I mean, I'm sure that there are Bitcoin philosophers that can go through this um, much more eloquently than I can, but uh, I, that's how I think it's going to change the world. It's like this monetary system that permeates everything, and uh, it's going to, you know, change a lot of our values um, because a lot of our values right now are, are fiat values. And I, you know, I can see how money printing affects uh, the masses in a way that um, seems invisible but is really um, distinct. Now that I think about it. Once we reach a level where the gains are going to be much smaller and the incentive to huddle will reduce, and let's say that we are in the middle of hyper-Bitcoinization, I don't think people will... That's right now. We are in the middle of it. Right. But I'm talking about that moment where we're, we're going to replace fiat currencies with Bitcoin. And we're going to have possibly all of the Bitcoins mined, or I, I hope that it will happen before that in our lifetime, but... 100%. Okay. Although I don't know about the replacing fiat with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin will be very, very significant. You're much more bullish than I am. But anyway, it's going to be this sort of circular economy where people will exchange Bitcoins for goods and services which retain their price over a longer time and they're much more predictable because there is no unpredictable inflation and there is nothing sudden that can happen to disrupt the market. But at the same time, I think that 20, 30 years years from now, people will be much more willing to spend their Bitcoins than we are because right now we expect greater returns, even though in terms of Bitcoins, you always have one Bitcoin which equals another Bitcoin. But in US dollars, for example, you can expect greater returns and a greater purchasing power. You're going to be able to buy, let's say that I get $100 in Bitcoin today and I'm going to huddle it for five years 
and it's going to buy me a car. You're not going to have that 30 years from now. You're going to have stable prices and a predictable economy and something which is really great in itself, but the incentive to save and huddle is not going to be as great as it is now. Totally. And that's why the world will continue, right? As Bitcoin, as base money, like productive things will happen. But I think the beauty, the beautiful thing is because there's a hard money standard and that the money will slowly appreciate and at least will not depreciate against goods and services, you'll see things getting cheaper and you'll see only things that are truly good investments will be invested in. I live in San Francisco right now. Before Bitcoin, I know we never got into my Bitcoin story, but before Bitcoin, I was doing sales at startups here in Silicon Valley. I worked for three or four different ones. And literally every single one was such a garbage company. Just I've never worked for a good company in Silicon Valley. And yet at all of them, I was there during fundraising where they raised multiple millions of dollars. I just do not think that's going to be happening the same way in a Bitcoin world. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course, if Bitcoin is based money, people are not going to say hodl it till I die, you know, at that point, like at that point, you know, the appreciation has happened, the speculative aspect is over, that phase is done. And at that point, it's just based money. Yeah, I agree. And now that I think about it, there's a lot of irrationality in Silicon Valley. And there's this whole culture of throwing millions of dollars, which are inflated from one year to the other, so it doesn't matter. But they're being thrown in all sorts of stupid ideas and businesses that rarely ever end up producing something. And then you have all these stories about brilliant coders who become millionaires overnight. But right now, the million dollars is nothing as compared to 10 years ago and even less valuable than 30, 40 years ago. So yeah, uh, I guess that this kind of economy cannot go on for such a long time. And one of my fears is that unless Bitcoin succeeds, we're going to get under the rule of China or Russia or some other country which is much more careful and cautious with the way it manages its economy. And whenever there is going to be a world crisis and maybe that the American empire collapses, I think China is the next great power to come and take over the world. And I can hardly imagine how life is going to be any better or good at all under the Chinese control. Yeah, I mean, I think that Bitcoin gives me a lot of hope in this sense. Uh, I also generally believe that central planning is not effective. So I'm actually, I'm not as scared about China because I think that over time, and I think that currently right now, they are great despite their leadership. Uh, so they're great because of their massive population, because of their culture, because of a lot of things. I think that their leadership uh, actually holds them back. I'm sure a lot of people will argue against that, uh, but I think that that will continue to be evident. And as uh, the current president, I can't pronounce his name, Xi Jinping, uh, as he eventually deteriorates and goes away, he's not going to live forever. Whoever follows up with him is undoubtedly going to be less of a leader and so on and so forth. And as they are dependent on strong men at the helm, I just don't 
see them moving into the future effectively. Maybe I'm just optimistic, maybe I'm stupid, uh, but that's my take on China. Right. And Russia, I think they're also very smart in playing with this whole global politics dynamics. And you can see how a satellite state of Russia, which did not exist until 1991, which is Ukraine, is now the subject of the biggest political scandal that has struck the United States maybe in the last decade. <laughs> yeah. Impeachment procedure and all the circus that follows it and all these accusations of foreign intervention and whatever. Yeah, I mean... I know you haven't read The Sovereign Individual yet, but I actually see a world where Putin is the first sovereign individual, the first great one. Uh, so I don't even know if, and maybe people could argue that other dictators were like that too, but he's kind of living in this modern cyber world and he is definitely an expert at exploiting and utilizing cyber warfare. He's probably the best in the whole world. And it's just very interesting, like seeing him operate similar to how maybe like an evil, powerful, sovereign individual would operate from the book, The Sovereign Individual. So I, I, I find Putin as a very interesting figure in current history. And I would not be surprised if more of these emerge as Bitcoin becomes to grow and grow and grow. But on the flip side, I think that there'll be, you know, benevolent moderate are uh, sovereign individuals and there's going to be small nation states that um, have similar type of power it's going to be really weird we're going to see a world with uh, a wide variety of different governing methodologies and you know different power structures where individuals are as powerful as nation states and stuff like that that's yeah. weird i think surrey just <laughs> turned on automatically on my phone so your iphone is listening to you <laughs> Okay, I'm going to be very careful and choose my words wisely to make sure that your iPhone doesn't send... Vlad, are you there? Yeah. So you don't hear me anymore? CK, hello? Check. Do you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, my my headphones freaked out when my iPhone uh, my iPhone turned on Siri. Okay. But that yeah, I don't know what happened there. Started speaking of Vladimir Putin and him being the first sovereign individual, and then your iPhone freaked out and caused your headphones to freak out as if there are some mysterious forces trying not to allow us to finish this podcast. Yeah, look at that. I started talking about Putin and then uh, Surrey turns on. Mm, interesting. I'm from Romania, which is a country that's pretty close to Russia. So I should be a spy, right? I should be like this kind of agent who should be watched very carefully by three-letter agencies from the United States. Oh, man. He shouldn't be saying that too loudly on uh, on this podcast. You don't want people uh, connecting those dots there, Vlad. 
Oh, so my, my name is also Vlad, even more suspicious. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, what else do we have to talk about? We kind of talked about everything. Yeah. In a roundabout way. Why, why do you recommend the sovereign in, in individual? Because you referenced it a couple of times and you're only making me want to read it more badly, but I need that itch. So can you give it to me in some descriptive way? Cool. So sovereign individual is, and I haven't even finished it completely. I I'm about a hundred pages left to go. I've been slowly chugging my way through it, but uh, essentially they paint this world of like what happens at like, as the, like kind of like the global paradigm shifts. Right. And they reference past global paradigm shifts where um, it was like the middle, you know, the, the ancient ages to the medieval ages um, from the, the gunpowder, how gunpowder changed the medieval ages and enabled the nation state. And then they talk about what the Internet is doing now to the world and what happens next. And it's really freaking crazy how accurate a lot of the things that they talk about are. Um, the general theme is that, in, uh, just for context, the book was written in 1995 or published in 1995. So well before Bitcoin, but they talked about cryptocurrencies. They talk about how people will be able that the internet will create this, its own nation. And then at some point the internet will be wealthier than all other nations. And that on the internet, um, you can be whoever you want. You can control your own value. Um, everything that's digital, you'll be able to kind of take with you and control and that's going to give you a lot of sovereignty and they talked about how it's going to have tax implications for nation states how it's going to make it very difficult for nation states to control their people um, they talked about how nation states will have to become smaller and more competitive and will compete with each other to essentially serve uh, the wealthy people that they have to try to get to live there stuff like that um and we're already seeing signs of this a little bit, stuff like Malta, Gibraltar, all these little island nations that ha are essentially tax havens. Uh, they're the beginning of that. And that's just going to continue to expand, especially if we see a Malta get extremely wealthy. Um, you know, it's going to be very obvious uh, that that is a good strategy. Um, I think Singapore is another example of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's just very, very interesting to hear them talk about what the future with the internet looks like and then kind of seeing, you know, where they got it spot on. And it's a lot of places. That sounds interesting and intriguing. I'm going to try to get the book here in Romania, even though I'm sure it's not easy to find in libraries. I'm going to look it up. We don't have Amazon, so it's kind of more difficult, but there is a chance that I can find a translation, even though I don't want that because usually translations are not faithful, faithful to the original. They're not very good or accurate. If you can send it to me after you finish it, I will gladly read it and we can turn it into some kind of LN trust chain, like Hodlow Nuts and Satoshi's. <laughs> we can send the sovereign individual all over the world Man, maybe I should just buy a bunch of them and, and uh, ship them to you. Yeah, you, you can send me some Bitcoin magazines too. I wouldn't mind it. I gave them away, by the way. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you, just you gave them all away or what? We went to the Baltic Honey Badger in Riga a couple of weeks ago. And you brought, it was a great conference. 
Yeah, you brought some Bitcoin magazines. Like, I think it's the number, which is the 10th anniversary. It marks the 10th anniversary of Bitcoin. And that was distributed during the 2019 conference. In June, I think that took place. Yep. In SF, my hometown. Right. So I just gave them away to random people. To I gave one to the taxi driver who basically asked me, are you coming from Bitcoin conference? And I said, yes. So what is there to discuss for such a long time? How can you make a conference out of something as basic as Bitcoin? And I was actually amused by his question and I gave him a magazine and said, okay, you can read this. You can get some useful information. It's really good. It will help you understand some aspects of Bitcoin and it has some basic lessons. And I know that Bitcoin Magazine is trying to adapt its style to making the articles as accessible as possible, as opposed to turning them into technical pieces that only a bunch of experts can read and understand. And after that, I went to the airport and I met a guy who helped me with information about switching flights because I had a stop in Warsaw in Poland. And I also gave him a magazine. And from that point, whenever I would speak to a stranger who seemed interesting to some degree, I would just give him or her a magazine. And I only kept one for myself. But they are very hard to find on this side of the Atlantic. And I think they contain some very useful information. And the quality is so great that you don't want to throw it away. I mean, the paper, and I, I'm not saying this just because I also work for Bitcoin Magazine now, but the paper is of such great quality that it feels like a catalog from the 1990s that you, even though it was old and obsolete, we're just keeping it there because it looks so nice. It, it has such a glossy and soft paper that you just like to touch. And the colors are vivid and it just looks great. The graphics, everything. Just congratulations. I'm, I'm proud to be working for Bitcoin Magazine. And if you have any more samples, I would gladly take them and give them to not necessarily no coiners, but pre-coiners who are intrigued about the idea of Bitcoin, but maybe that they did not have the proper resource to get them down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the magazines are absolutely fantastic. And hopefully you can, uh, you can contribute some of your own articles to uh, the next issue that's set to come out at the Bitcoin 2020 conference next March in, uh, in San Francisco again. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you should definitely send a clip of that audio to Christy and be like, this is why you need to ship me a box of magazines. Uh, but we got to get you some magazines over there so you can continue to spread the good word. Yeah, definitely. I know that there are lots of online resources about Bitcoin and you can just send people just that one page that Jameson Lop has built along. Oh man, it's a hard page though. It's a hard page, yeah. And there's too much information and it's overwhelming and the articles are not necessarily the most concise or the simplest to understand. It's overwhelming to get there. But when you have a magazine, you can just take it, you read, just 
maybe one page a day and it's still something. And what I like about this particular issue is that it has like a historical approach to Bitcoin and it presents, I think there's an article about history of exchanges. There's another one about improvements that were brought to Bitcoin. There's one about the Silk Road and cypherpunks and it just gets you in the right mood to understand the spirit of Bitcoin. And if you're curious to know more, you can always go on bitcoinmagazine.com and there's a huge archive of articles. And sometimes just for the sake of it, I read stuff from 2012 when the magazine was launched. And just a fun piece of trivia, the first issue was published in Romania. I'm not sure if you knew that. Because, I think you told me in Riga. Yeah, the magazine was co-founded by Vitalik and Mihai Alisie, who is Romanian. And apparently Mihai Alisie was the first editor-in-chief, but he sucked. Like, really, I tried to read his articles. He was terrible. And even Vitalik, who is regarded as a genius, had a very rough start and was not much of a reporter or journalist. He didn't have a proper approach to writing articles that at the same time have a good technical understanding, which he most likely had, as far as I can tell, and writing in good English that makes it pleasant to read. And I'm going to send you a screenshot from one of the articles that he wrote about Bitcoin wallets, and it's from 2013 or something. And you can turn this into a drinking game. So. Whenever you read Bitcoin wallet during this article, you take a shot and you'll possibly get drunk by the end of the first paragraph because he didn't <laughs> raise everything to make it easy to read and cursive and pleasant. It's just very rough. And I'm happy that the magazine got taken over by, I think it was Charlie Shrem who bought it from the first two founders and from that point right now it's mr bailey right who owns it yeah i think david got it from was the next person and now btc media operates it along with the let's talk bitcoin podcast network and the bitcoin conference i feel like this was a huge advertisement for bitcoin magazine but i feel like the content is great and there's there's this historic approach that you can use when reading and look for articles from as early as 2012 and see how the spirit and the understanding of Bitcoin has changed over time and how the technology has evolved and how many more people got interested and brought their contributions. It's a fascinating space. It has such a short history, but at the same time, there is so much content and I like it. Totally, man. Well, glad to, to have you on the team and thank you for having me on the podcast. This, uh, this was a fun discussion. It was. And I'm not sure if the first part about my tuition fees is any is interesting in any way, but I think your perspective on altcoins is a more detailed explanation of what Giacomo said. And maybe that some people have regarded that as being controversial but it makes a lot of sense because there is only so much that governments and bureaucrats can do to crack down Bitcoin. And if they waste their energy on 
EOS, for example, and I saw a piece of news yesterday that the government of Virginia has acquired EOS for, I think it was $600,000, which is insane. It's batshit crazy. That should not happen. But they are so misled and stupid that they spend taxpayers' money investing into something that's going to crash and burn within a couple of years. Maybe that they make some gains, possibly, if they know when to sell, but it's still insane. But the fact that they do it only means that Bitcoin can develop and nourish in peace. So, yeah. Totally. That's, that's all I want, is I just want no one to fuck with Bitcoin. We don't want anyone to fuck with Bitcoin because, realistically speaking, we have not seen the worst. And if there is some kind of coordination between nation states and you get the biggest actors to try to attack it, you don't even have to try to take down the cryptography. You just have to execute and take down some of the developers and threaten miners. And I, I think that will lead to a point where the believers will be running their full nodes and mining rigs on their laptops in their homes via Tor, which is another dimension of decentralization. The, if the governments decide to shut down industrial mining, which is happening right now, then we're all going to become miners. And I hope- So they- wait, what do you mean by, but what do you mean by uh, the governments, right? I, I just don't see a world where all governments coordinate. I don't think that that's a realistic assumption. I don't think that if we refer to the governments as the UN, for example, there's ever going, and by UN, I mean the Security Council where the five big powers have their words and their input. Maybe that in that regard, there's always going to be a veto on the side of China or Russia. But if you have, for example, NATO doing it, you have the United States, which has a lot of leverage and you have I don't think there is really any strong opposition to what the United States want. And when there's an issue of budget and contributions to NATO, maybe that they can oppose and say, oh, we don't want to give that much money. Because Donald Trump, when he got elected, he said that each member state of NATO should be giving 1% of GDP to contribute to the defense. And I, I remember Germany was not very happy about it. So maybe that there are some countries that will oppose to it. But the United States has a lot of influence. And in the case of Romania, I think they can just reshape our entire constitution and policy if they want, which hasn't happened as far as I know. But each time a new president of Romania gets elected, the next day he makes a visit to the U.S. embassy. And that that should tell you something about how independent we are as a country. Yeah. I mean, we this is a whole nother rabbit hole. I just think that one of Bitcoin's greatest weapons is regulatory arbitrage. And I just don't think that all governments are going to coordinate to the level of uh, of uh, kind of industrial mining being banned. I just don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see. And that's, again, the beauty of the, the difficulty adjustment is that if we're just all mining on GPUs, then so be it. Yeah, it's going to be fun and much more decentralized than it already is. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't 100% agree with with that vision, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm kind of getting towards uh, the end of my time. I gotta, I gotta get going soon here, Vlad. But yeah, I would love to wrap it up. Yeah, this was great. And we have had lots of random discussions, which in the grand scheme of a plan, it doesn't seem like we have had any kind of coordination or plan to begin with. But we did talk about shit coins. We did talk about our understanding and projection of what Bitcoin will be at the end of the hyper Bitcoinization, because you're arguing that this is an ongoing process. And we also had that nice part about Bitcoin Magazine, which is mutual and nice, and we can agree on it. So thank you very much, Christian, or CK, or however you want to get called, CK Snarks. Yeah, thanks a lot. And you can follow me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. You can find my podcast at POV Crypto Pod if you want to hear more of this philosophizing and talking about Bitcoin versus shitcoins. That's the place to do it. Okay, so thank you. Talk to you later. Cheers.